Welcome to Witness to Yesterday, the podcast of the Champlain Society. My name is Patrice Dutille. It is often said that, for all the talk of multiculturalism in this country, that many immigrant communities simply become invisible because their stories are seldom discussed. One of the oldest ones, and one of the most neglected ones, are those of black immigrants. Some of them were brought to Canada against their will, as part of the transatlantic trade. We also often think of those who arrived in Canada as part of the Underground Railroad in the 1850s and 1860s. But there was another wave, one that preceded the Underground Railroad, and that is the wave of the Black Loyalists. To talk about it, I asked Stephen Davidson to join me. He's the author of many books on diverse aspects of the Black historical experience, and his latest book is Black Loyalists in New Brunswick, The Lives of Eight African Americans in Colonial New Brunswick, published by Formac. We reached him at his office in Lower Sackville, just outside Halifax, Nova Scotia. Stephen Davidson, welcome to the Champlain Society podcast. Thank you, Patrice. Good to be here. You're the witness to yesterday for this episode. Take me to May 11th, 1783, when the good ship Union appeared on the mouth of the St. John River. What happened? This ship was the flagship for the very first uh, refugee evacuation fleet that was headed for what's now New Brunswick. There had been um, other refugee evacuation ships that went to Nova Scotia earlier. And on that flagship were uh, 62 men, 39 women, and 108 children. And among that population were two black loyalists. Uh, one was 27-year-old Tom Hyde, and the other was a nine-year-old girl that we only know as Suki. And um, they, they are the, uh, the first black loyalists to arrive on the shores of what is today New Brunswick. Do we know where they came from? We don't know where Suki came from. Uh, Tom Hyde uh, had been enslaved in New Jersey. Stephen, this is a topic you've been exploring for over 40 years. Uh, you've written a number of books on this subject, both fiction and nonfiction. In 2019, you published Birchtown and the Black Loyalist Experience from 1775 to the present. What draws you to this subject? Well, I was a university student in the early 70s, and uh, that meant a childhood where I was um, witness on television as as most Canadians were to the uh, civil rights movement, both in the United States and in Canada. Of course, that's going to have an impact. You know, a, a, an outstanding man like uh, Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. is is going to make an impression. Um, when I got to university, um, it wasn't until my sophomore year when I took a Canadian history course that I, I found out the astounding fact that, that one in 10 loyalists who settled in the Maritimes were black. And as someone with New Brunswick roots, I was well aware of my own loyalist heritage, but I'd, I'd never heard of black loyalists before. I also had a, uh, an African-Canadian roommate that year. And, and so, it, you know, it's hard to know all the, the factors together, what, what makes you, you attach to a particular topic. Um, also, I mean, it's the fascination of the, the fact that, that it's, it was a, a forgotten chapter in Canadian history. So it was the, uh, the fascination of the unknown is, was a component of it as well. Well, it obviously stayed with you for a long time. Yeah, yeah. I, it, when I was doing an honors program at Acadia, and uh, in, in part of that process is writing an honors thesis. So I knew by the time I got to my final year that I, I wanted to do something on on black loyalists. 
and there just wasn't an awful lot available at the time um, in the mid-70s. So I, I ended up doing a thesis that had a component uh, of black loyalist history, but it was not entirely black loyalist history. But it was it was enough to uh, to to get me into the the primary documents and the books related to that chapter in Canadian history. Bear with me for a second. Let's walk this back a little bit. What is your sense? Uh, how would you describe the state of history when it comes to black communities in Canada? I mean, you've been at this for forty years. Have we come along at all in trying to understand the black communities? Yeah, we have. It's it's it's. I was looking over, you know, my materials that I had to draw on when I was, you know, an honor student doing my thesis. Not a lot in the seventies. Um, I mean, Robin Winks, the Blacks in Canada, uh, Professor Spray's book, Blacks in New Brunswick, in nineteen seventy-two. You know, these, they, you know, it was just not even a handful of books. Um, but especially in the eighties, um, more and more people began to to get into that aspect of Canadian history. And in fact, scholars as far away as Australia, the United Kingdom, United States, as well as Canada um, began to publish books, names like James Walker, Simon Scammon, Harvey Imani, Whitfield, Cassandra Pybus, uh, Ruth Holmes Whitehead, Alan Gilbert, uh, Maya Jasanoff, really started to 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 dig into the story of black loyalists but probably what's most encouraging is the grassroots level um 1983 the black cultural center opens in cherry brook nova scotia um 1989 the the black loyalist heritage society is founded in nova scotia and 11 years later an interpretive center is is opened up in birchtown and five, 15 years later the the black loyalist heritage center opens in birchtown um, in 2008, the University of New Brunswick gathers a team of historians to create a website about Black loyalists in New Brunswick. And in New Brunswick itself, 2010 is the year that the um, New Brunswick Black History Society formed. So a real momentum growing both in, in uh, scholarly circles as well as, you know, grassroots organizations. That's great news. So let's remind us now about the 60,000 loyalists who came to Canada. Where did they come from and where did they go? Now we're talking about obviously not just the, the, the black loyalists, but all of the loyalists. Can you give us a little background on that? Sure. They they came from all 13 colonies. The, when it comes to Canada, the majority would be New York State, uh, followed by New Jersey, Connecticut, Massachusetts, but all 13 rebelling colonies would be represented in, in the loyalist uh, refugees. And the the white loyalists represented all classes of society, primarily middle class. It's mostly farmers, shoemakers, uh, you know, people that that live in towns that um, that make up that population. And about fourteen thousand of them are going to end up settling in what becomes New Brunswick. But the majority of of loyalists um, do settle in the Maritimes. Significant numbers go to what's now Ontario and Quebec, as well as Great Britain, but. The vast majority settles in what is is now Maritime Canada. And how many of those were black? It, it depends on the historian you talk to. Anywhere between 3,500 and 4,000 would have been free black loyalists. So these are free black loyalists. These are not slaves. Right, yes. And, and sadly, again, a forgotten chapter of Canadian history is that the greatest influx of enslaved people in Canadian history coincides with the loyalists coming to what is now Canada, because 
loyalists like the patriots in the uh, American Revolution were slave owners, and they brought their slaves with them. So during the American Revolution and in the years that followed, um, we have both free blacks, known as black loyalists, as well as the enslaved uh, Africans that uh, white loyalists brought with them. Now, you see that the majority of the black loyalists settled in the Maritimes. Uh, can you give us a sense of uh, those that went to what we know now as Nova Scotia and how many went to what we know now as New Brunswick? Well, let's let's say that there were 4,000, uh, the, the upper number. Um, most historians go with about a third going to New Brunswick and two-thirds going to Nova Scotia. Um, there were some that went to what is now Upper Canada, um, but again, the majority is, is settling in Nova Scotia. Now, we know a lot about the, the, the Black loyalists who settled in Nova Scotia. You've given us lots of examples of, of organizations and uh, publications that have cropped up in, in, in Nova Scotia, but why has, how come No Brunswick's story has been overlooked? Yeah, it seems, you know, looking at looking things over is that there was never an establishment of a of a strong black loyalist community. Uh, Nova Scotia had uh, the Prestons opposite um, Halifax. It had Birchtown near Shelburne. It had Brindley Town near Annapolis Royal and Digby. And th there were places where um, there were, you know, significant numbers of, of uh, black loyalists able to form their own communities. New Brunswick um, initially, a lot are given town lots in the St. John area, but they can't farm, and so they, they make attempts to farm further up the St. John River and its tributaries, and, and the population gets dispersed, gets spread out, and there never seems to be that significant number of black loyalists in a particular area to, to form the sort of communities that you, you would have in the Prestons uh, outside of Halifax. Now, again, I think it's worth reminding ourselves that New Brunswick did not exist when when the Loyalists started moving towards the Maritimes, right? Exactly. It was Western Nova Scotia. What, what, can, you, can you remind us of what exactly happened uh, to create New Brunswick? Well, what, what happened was uh, so many Loyalists unexpectedly arrived at the mouth of the St. John River and, and went up river on the St. John River that um, it was sort of, Nova Scotia was kind of taken taken aback by that, and those loyalists felt that they were significantly far away from Halifax, that they ought to be running their own show. So um, they they petitioned the British government to separate, and so what was known as Sunbury County or Western Nova Scotia, um, above the Bay of Fundy, north of the Bay of Fundy, was became its, its own colony, which significantly, it's the first colony founded by refugees in the British Empire. So it's it's interesting yeah, it's an important point to remind. I mean, we forget that. Yeah, and in fact, the New Brunswick flag, it's a very stylized version of a ship, but that is actually a stylized version of a refugee ship. So again, unbeknownst to most Canadians, we, we have a refugee evacuation ship as part of the coat of arms and the flag of, of one of our provinces. It's truly remarkable. I, ha I have to say, Stephen, your book surprised me in so many ways. I guess I didn't think that black loyalists had settled in New Brunswick, and, and you focus on eight families. Can you tell us the story of Thomas Hyde? Sure. Now, Thomas, just by the luck of, of who uh, became his employer, ends up being the first black loyalist that we know of to set foot in New Brunswick. And uh, he 
escaped from his master in New Jersey, crossed uh, Long Island Sound, worked for the British during the American Revolution, and then hires himself out to Filer Dibley, um, who is the agent for that evacuation fleet flagship, the Union. So in accompanying his employer, he ends up becoming the very first black loyalist to, to arrive in, in New Brunswick. And he's fortunate because he is, you know, he's a wage earner. Uh, he's not looking for employment when he gets to New Brunswick. He already has a job. But unfortunately, his, uh, his employer dies by suicide within uh, about a year of, of arriving in New Brunswick. And so... Tom Hyde is on his own resources trying to, uh, to make his way in this, this new colony. New Brunswick's um, largest city, St. John, is created in 1785, and in its royal charter, it actually specifically bans blacks from living and working in the city of St. John. So um, Tom Hyde and others like him are not going to be able to, uh, to, to hang around St. John. And so they petitioned the New Brunswick government for farmland, and um, in, in Tom Hyde's case, it is uh, up in the Belle Isle, which is a tributary of the, uh, the St. John River. And so the, the last time we see his name in any uh, primary documents is as a, a member of a group that is, uh, with, he's, he's one of 12 that are trying to uh, acquire land on the Belle Isle. And then like so many black loyalists who, who managed to get their name in some primary document, he, he disappears from history. But um, what is striking is that, you know, for someone who had been enslaved and was at the bottom rung of colonial society, when he gets to New Brunswick, um, he very quickly, you know, falls into uh, the standard practices of how do you acquire land? Will you petition the government? Um, it's, it's just interesting how quickly men like Tom Hyde took advantage of their, their British citizenship as free men and, and behaved um, as, as men who were owed um, recognition for serving the crown during the revolution. He seemed to have lived a quiet life as far as your, what your archives can tell you. Do you have any sense of whether he in fact stayed in New Brunswick? Did he, was he able to, to get a farm and, and, and farm the land? Well, the, the, um, there's an early map of New Brunswick around 1787, and it does not show uh, black loyalist settlements around the Belle Isle, where it does show black loyalist settlements on other parts of the, uh, the St. John River. So it seems that settlement failed for some reason. Um, and we know that over 200 black loyalists took advantage of the, uh, the offer to resettle in Sierra Leone on the west coast of Africa. The problem is, is we do not have complete lists of, of who it was that, that um, took advantage of that opportunity. So Tom Hyde may have joined with the 200 black loyalists and, and settled in Sierra Leone, but not everyone went. And, and so he, he may in fact have stayed and, and have descendants among us today, but, but that has been lost, in, at least in, in the documents. You know, one always hopes that there's oral history out there within the, um, the community of black loyalist descendants that, that will in the future shed more light on this. Right. Now, you make a distinction in your book between two waves of black loyalists. What do you mean by that? Let me, the thinking is that you, you, you identify the first wave, those people who arrived in the, in the 1780s, but you also identify people who arrive during the war, the, the war of 1812. 
Yes, uh, and, and among historians, those two groups are, are given separate names just because they had very different experiences. Although they both were given their freedom by the British in a conflict with, with Americans, um, the Black Loyalists of 1783 lived in New Brunswick for 30 years before the Black refugees of the War of 1812 came and settled in the province. So um, the Black Loyalists are there with the White Loyalists as their... Um, you know, carving new new communities out of the wilderness, and the uh, the black refugees are coming to a province that is has been in in the control of of white loyalists for the past thirty years, and and has a scattered black loyalist population. So that they are similar in that they they were given freedom by the British, but but separate in the experiences that they would have had. So historians do make a, a differentiation between those two groups. Was it a better experience come 1813, 1814? I haven't been able to find anything that, that um, suggests that. Uh, very immediately, the, the Black refugees of the War of 1812 were assigned certain places to, to settle in the province where with the black loyalists, they petitioned the, the New Brunswick government to settle on places like the Narapus River, uh, down river on the St. John River, uh, Belle Isle, um, near uh, Kingsclear, which is above Fredericton. They, they, the black loyalists had the opportunity in a, in a province that was being you know taken over by white loyalists, the opportunity to settle in different parts of the province. I don't get the sense that there was that same freedom for the uh, the black refugees of of 1812. Now, again, your book talks about eight lives, but one of them struck me: the the story of Richard Corancapoon. Did I say his name correctly? Uh, dear knows there are six different spellings <laughs> for his name. <laughs> Tell us about his story. Yeah, yeah. Obviously, um, you know, the the uh, recorders of his own day had a hard time understanding exactly how, how it ought to be spelled. Yes, he is a, an inspiring gentleman. He was able to buy his own freedom in New Jersey, which would mean that um, he was allowed to earn money in, in whatever craft he'd been trained in by his, his uh, enslaver. So he buys his own freedom. He works for the British. He is recognized as a leader by the British in New York City because he's made the captain of a company of black loyalists, about 34 men, and plus their, their families, who um, hid for New Brunswick on a ship called the Clinton. So he would be responsible for making sure that they knew when the ship was leaving and make sure that they got to the evacuation vessel on time. So he's recognized as a leader even before coming to New Brunswick. When he gets to New Brunswick, um, we very slowly see this man known as Richard Wheeler in the, in the early records. We see him become Richard C. Wheeler in the victualling muster for Fort Howe, which distributed food to people. Later on in a, in a petition, he, his name is given as Richard Crankapoon Wheeler. And then eventually he drops the Wheeler entirely, which of course was his enslaver's name and is known for the rest of his history as, as Richard Crankapoon. So he's interesting in that he's someone who remembered his African name and decided to use it and, and drop his enslaver's name. Now, he, he also tried to petition for land. He was um, one of 16 men that, that applied for land on the Narapus River near today's Westfield, New Brunswick. That settlement did not work out. And when the opportunity to go to Sierra Leone came along, he 
joins those 200 some New Brunswickers that, that want to go to Sierra Leone. The only problem is he's denied access to an evacuation vessel that's, that's going to Halifax en route to Sierra Leone. New Brunswick did not want to lose a cheap labor force, and that's how many white loyalists perceive the black loyalists. And they actually came up with false documents or had people give false testimony to retain some black loyalists. But Krakapoon doesn't give up. And, and so, you know, instead of seeing the ships departing for Halifax and saying, well, that's it, I can't do anything more, he strikes out for Halifax over land. And in 15 days, in December, he walks 500 kilometers um, <laughs> and knocks at the door in Halifax of, of John Clarkson, who has been put in charge of the, um, the, the um, ships going to Sierra Leone. So he shows remarkable tenacity and perseverance. And when he gets to Sierra Leone, he, he ends up becoming a constable in Freetown, the, the Black Loyalist settlement there. So again, is recognized as a leader to New Brunswick's loss and ends up dying at the age of 58, uh, defending Freetown from a rebel Black Loyalist. And sadly, some of the men that he was fighting against in that uh, altercation in, in Freetown were actually men that he had settled on the Narapas River with in New Brunswick. It's truly an amazing story. I know. I mean, you know, these are the stories to deserve a, a wider audience and, and maybe a novelist to fill in some details to to uh, to share the story. Oh, yeah. It needs a movie. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you know if Richard Karankapoon was actually born in Africa or was he born in slavery in the United States? We don't know that, do we? Oh, again, there's so many parts of the story that are absent. We, I assume that he was born in Africa simply by the fact that he re remembered his name and, and that he reacquired it. I, I would take think that to have pride in his African heritage, he, he must have been of a particular, you know, age when, when he arrived, at least as, a, as an older boy, if, if not a young man. It's truly amazing. Now, Stephen, I have to ask you the, the classic Champlain Society question about your sources. Uh, this is really a story that depends entirely on your ability to dig out documents from the past. Can you tell us about how you did manage to document these stories? What sources did you use? Did you Were you able to use new sources? Yeah, it's hard to answer a question about new sources because I'm not aware of everything other historians use, but I, I um, what I have done is, is, I mean, black history within the loyalist era is, is the proverbial needle in the haystack. But the thing is, I'm always digging in that haystack. And so as I'm digging, researching stories on white loyalists, whenever I find something about a black loyalist, I sort of tuck it away. And eventually I get these random jigsaw puzzle pieces, so to speak, and begin to see connections. So for example, in the Book of Negroes, which is a ledger kept of, of black loyalists hitting for the Maritimes and, and, and other points around the globe. I mean, I just want to point out, this is not a, a piece of fiction. The Book of Negroes was kept by Sir Guy Carleton right. to actually document the people of color who were, who were being sent to Canada. Right. So I, in, in, in looking through the Book of Negroes ledger, I came across the name of, of Pompeii and Cairo. And um, I had access to the probate records of New Brunswick and had, you know, there was the name Pompeii and Cairo were in the will of a particular white loyalist. Um, and, and so finding those names in the probate records, I went back to say, okay, you know, were these people part of the evacuation from New York in 1783? And lo and behold, they were. So I was able to connect probate records with the, the Book of Negroes um, ledger. 
then I came across christening records for a, an Anglican church in the area where Pompey and his wife uh, lived. And lo and behold, found that, that um, another black family had named their children in honor of Pompey and Cairo. So little pieces like that start to fit together. I found correspondence to Sir Guy Carleton, where the white loyalist who enslaves Cairo uh, Rumsey asked Carleton to, uh, to, to give a, something like a passport to Pompey Rumney so that the free black loyalist husband could accompany his enslaved wife to what is now New Brunswick. Uh, so the whole story of that couple is built on four little scraps of, of uh, data found in, in you know, widely varied sources. So the probate records were an unexpected source of information. The victualling musters, which is a list of the people fed at Fort Howe in St. John during their first year of, of settlement. Um, christening records, Sir, uh, Sir Guy Carleton's correspondence, the Book of Negroes is, is sort of the, the basic go-to in any of this kind of research. John Clarkson's journal, the man that, that oversaw the Sierra Leone um, expedition. Newspapers and petitions that are found at the public archives of New Brunswick. You know, these are all the, the, the sources that, that um, you go to and, and, and try to, you know, ferret out every little crumb of information that you can find. Well, you sure make a lot out of these little crumbs. Uh, the book is full of interesting details. I wonder, last question, Stephen, is there a place in New Brunswick to remember these black loyalists? Is there a monument? Is there, is there a, a lieu de mémoire, as we say in French, a place to, to reflect on the experience of these black loyalists in New Brunswick today? It's coming. Um, I, I have contacts within uh, the New Brunswick uh, Black History Society and, uh, and, and Prude Incorporated, and they are, are trying to, to, uh, to get space within the, uh, the New Brunswick Museum at uh, King's Landing Historical Settlement. Um, there is now uh, an acknowledgement of Black Loyalist presence in New Brunswick. Um, they've recreated a pit house there to, to represent Black Loyalist settlers. The work of Ralph Thomas, one of the, the, um, the founders of New Brunswick Black um, History Society, Ralph has gone to communities that that have uh, that once had names like Negro Brook or a Negro Head, um, and has asked them, you know, would they consider changing those names to something more fitting to honor rather than denigrate uh, New Brunswick's Black history? And those communities have cooperated, and as is referenced in the um, conclusion of my book. Um, those communities in New Brunswick have get, changed those names so that uh, they now honor Black loyalist history. So it, it is it is slowly happening. Well, I have no doubt that your book is going to fuel the drive to remember the Black loyalists uh, better so that more people are aware of their story. Thank you for joining me, uh, Stephen. I really appreciate it. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to share these stories. They, they are fascinating and, and they ought to be better known. That was Stephen Davidson, the author of Black Loyalists in New Brunswick, The Lives of Eight African Americans in Colonial New Brunswick, published by Formac. You've been listening to Witness to Yesterday, the Champlain Society podcast on Canadian history. Please visit our website at www.champlainsociety.ca where you'll find more about what the Society does. 
There's even a place to become a member and a sustainer of the Society if you like these conversations with historians about Canada's past. Please let people know how much you like these dialogues by using whatever social media you use. We'd be really proud of your support. This podcast is made possible by the members of the Champlain Society who are making an investment in the hard work of bringing to life original documents in Canadian history. Thank you. Thanks also to the Hudson's Bay Company History Foundation, the L.R. Wilson Institute of History at McMaster University, and a consortium of Canadian scholarly book publishers that includes the University of Toronto Press, the University of British Columbia Press, and the University of Ottawa Press. My name is Patrice Dutille. This interview was recorded in the middle of a pandemic on February 5th, 2021, by Jessica Schmidt. Thank you, everybody. We'll see you next time. Music